All right, so we are continuing um, our sermon series, studying the Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom Minded. And so what we're looking at is Jesus uh, brought his followers, his disciples up to the top of the mountain. So he's talking to them and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's explaining, okay, if we have repented, that means we have a change of thinking that leads into a change of action. So we no longer want to live for the world or live for ourselves. We want to live for Christ and we want to live for his kingdom. So if that means we are kingdom minded and followers of him, then, then he starts giving different commands of what it looks like to be kingdom minded, to be a follower of him. So we've looked at different ones of how we shall not anger, how we shall not swear oaths, how we shall not lust, how we shall not divorce, how we shall not retaliate that last week. And tonight we're going to be looking at how we shall love your enemies. You shall love your enemies. So I actually want to want to tell you a story that I read about that I think captures this so well and so beautifully and so powerfully. So there was this uh, Christian radio station over in the Middle East, and there was this gentleman named Bashir that called into the radio show. And this was just recently after 21 Coptic Christians were beheaded and killed on the news channels in front of everyone. And in fact, Bashir said two of those people that were killed in that were actually two of his brothers, aged 25 and 23. And he was talking to the host about this and thinking through it. And he actually said how these 21 Christians, before they died, actually just cried out just Lord Jesus Christ. How they wouldn't renounce their faith, but they just said Lord Jesus Christ before they were beheaded and killed live on national TV. In fact, he, here's what Bashir said in one of the statements. Since the Roman era, Christians have been martyred and have learned to handle everything that comes our way. This only makes us stronger in our faith because the Bible told us to love our enemies and bless those who cursed you. And so the radio host was talking to Bashir and asked, what what would you do if you were asked to forgive ISIS? If you forgive these people that took the life of your two brothers? And he said, he talked about how a 60-year-old mother who he claimed, who he said, even according to her, how she would describe herself as in her 60s and, and an uneducated, just common woman. And what she would say is she would, she would welcome them into her home and she would pray that they would see God, that, that God would open up their eyes because that person is the reason their son is now entered into the kingdom of heaven. But only that, Bashir was then asked to pray on national, on this, on this radio show for these people. And he said, dear God, please open their eyes to be saved and to quit their ignorance and the wrong teachings that they were taught. This man who lost two brothers to these enemies, and he is asked, would he forgive them? And he not only prays, not only would he say forgive them, but he, he says, you know, I pray that their eyes are opened. I pray that they truly see their need for Christ. I want, I want you to think about this. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Bashir. And I want you to think, how would you react in a situation like that? I want you to think about how, how if just this militant force or whoever it was took the life of two of your dear, precious siblings. I just want you to think, what kind of emotions do you think would be stirred up inside you? How do you think you would respond to something like that? Because I got a feeling a good majority of us in this room would not have responded like Bashir did. I think a lot of us would be angry. I think a lot of us would be just, just, I mean, gnashing our teeth. I think a lot of us would, maybe many of us would want vengeance. One of us would want just restitution or to retaliate. I think a lot of us would want that because that's just natural desires that are stirred up in us because we feel like a wrong has occurred, that someone has done something that is so evil and vile. 
And yet, he says, Christ calls us to love our enemies. Christ calls us not just to love those who it's most convenient for us. Christ calls us not to just love those that are exactly like us, whether it be in personality or political ideology or theology or the way we dress or what school we go to or where we work. He says to love everyone. But here's the thing. We as fallen, sinful, broken human beings, we are prone to love those who are most like us. We gravitate towards those who dress like us, who maybe drive the same vehicle as us, who act a lot like us, have the same interests as us. That's just, or that's the natural pull we have. Or maybe some, we might, even, we might even love those who we might even feel like we can benefit the most out of that relationship with those people. It's so easy to love those who are easy to love, isn't it? Like some of these, it's so easy to. It's easy to get along with people that are the exact same as us. But it's difficult to love those people we disagree with, isn't it? It's difficult to love those people who might even, let's say, hate us for whatever reason. It might be even difficult for us, especially to love those who might even wish harm upon us for whatever reason. It's difficult for us. And and that's what I want us to see tonight is this command. The main point I want us to see is this, though. Regardless of who it is, regardless of of who we interact with the rub shoulders with, to be kingdom-minded is to love everyone unconditionally and universally. To be kingdom-minded is to love everyone unconditionally and universally. Which means everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of who they are, regardless of maybe even what we think of them in some ways, we are to love them unconditionally, no strings attached. No, no, no hidden fine print. That we are to love them unconditionally. And that is what we're going to be looking at tonight in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, is this command of to love your enemies. And how are we to do that? What does this look like? How is this so counterculture to the world we see around us? Because I'll be honest, this is a very radical thing, isn't it? I don't know if you know this, but there's kind of a big, important event coming up in the next few days. You might have seen plenty of commercials about it. You might be bombarded on YouTube or you might be bombarded on social media saying you have to vote for blank or blank or else blank will happen. You can fill in the blanks on that. But then when we look at these comment sections, everything going on, it is, I'll be honest, it is heartbreaking because we'll pin it to be like this person, let's say that person is the enemy. Here's the thing, regardless of, regardless of beliefs, regardless of what it boils down to the end of the day, is that we are to love everyone unconditionally and universally. So let's look at this passage together. If you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Matthew 5, 43-48. If you have your notes with you, it is on the back side of that, so you can follow along with us as we go through this. So this is what it says. This is the Word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray as just we come before you and as we come to this passage, I pray that that you would, like I said, free us of any distractions. 
I pray that I will just hide behind your word and let your word speak for itself, that it won't be my opinion, it'll be your truth, and that it is only your truth by the power of your Holy Spirit that, that, that plants a seed in our hearts and grows and bears fruit that glorifies and honors you. I pray, would you open up our eyes to see our need for Christ that much more? Would you open up our ears to hear just the truth of this? Would you open up our minds to just understand and comprehend this? Would you open up our hearts to receive this truth? It is only by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can do this. It is only by your Holy Spirit I can even properly communicate any of this. So, dear Lord, would you be glorified and honored? Would you, would you help, like I said, convict us of, of sins that we are living in this? But also, would you encourage us with different truths with this? Would you help us grow to make, continually make Christ's name known? Would you be glorified and honored as only you can? pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what Jesus does in this passage, he gives us two commands, two truths we are to live, that if we are to live out this main point, to, to love everyone unconditionally and universally, he gives us two truths that we are to live out. And the first one is this, loving others is to be imitators of God. So loving others is to be imitators of God. So in the first couple of verses, we see, you have heard it said, that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So again, he's been using this phrase a lot, like you've heard it said, you've heard it said before, you've heard it said to those of old, that kind of phraseology. Basically, he's just saying, okay, this is a command that was given to the Israelites, to the people of the old covenant. This was one of the laws that they heard. So this is something that these people would be on, like would know, they'd be kind of be familiar with, because that's what they studied, is the law. And Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law, and now I'm giving you new commands that take the truths of these old, of these old commands, and he's raising the bar on this. So he's talking about, okay, in the past, you've heard, you've heard it said of old that you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. So where this is mainly quoting from is Leviticus 19.18, this whole love your neighbor, where it says you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so there's other places this references, like in Matthew 19, 19, it says how you shall honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we see this in the gospel accounts of Mark and Luke, where he gives the second greatest commandment. So after he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, he says, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the second greatest command. Or Galatians 5, 14, where it says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or James 2, 8, where it says, if you really fulfill the law according to the scriptures, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you are doing well. So loving your neighbor is a huge command that is found central throughout all of scripture that Jesus is talking about. This command is central to the Israelites, so they would be well accustomed to know this. So your neighbor in context of Leviticus 19, 18 was about fellow Jews, fellow Jews that were in the area, fellow Israelites. However, uh, there were still scriptures about how you handled personal enemies or even handled foreigners and welcomed foreigners. But what happened is, is that these Jews, they took it and they expanded upon it to where it went a totally wrong, different direction. They expanded to an interpretation that was not what God truly intended. What he intended, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we are to love our neighbor as ourself, then I think it's important for us to understand who is our neighbor. And our neighbor is this, your neighbor is every human in our sphere of influence. Every human in our sphere of influence. So I want you to think about the different places you are involved in, the different spheres of influence you have. Like your school, your job, 
your sports teams, your neighborhoods, different just extracurricular like teams that you might be on, whatever you might be involved with where you rub shoulders with other people, all those different areas, every human in those spheres of influence is your neighbor. And so Jesus says those are the people that you are to love. You're to love those people. In fact, Jesus showed this in the parable of the Good Samaritan where the person is uh, dying on the road and it was the Samaritan of all people that helped him, which at that time would have been totally countercultural because Jews did not like Samaritans. And so that would have been a radical thing is that he was going to end up loving his neighbor as himself. But like I said, Jews took a very restrictive view of this. So he said, you've heard it say before, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But here's the thing. When we really study Leviticus 19.18, all it says is to love your neighbor. There's nothing in there about hating your enemy. So what the Jews did is they took and they believed that, okay, if we meant we're supposed to love fellow Jews, they expanded that to think, okay, anyone outside of the Jewish community, anyone outside that was a non-Israelite, that was outside the covenant of God is, is an enemy is an enemy of God. So we're to hate your enemy. But the thing is, like I said, Leviticus 19.18 says nothing about hating your enemy. It just says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus comes in real quick and says, I'm going to reject this interpretation that y'all are saying, how you're supposed to hate anyone outside of, let's say, that is a non-Jew, a non-Israelite, non-outside the covenant of God. That you are to emulate God the Father. That if you are a follower of Christ, you are to imitate His His following. You're to imitate his example. He loved everyone unconditionally. And so now he says, okay, you've heard it said of old, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. And now he's giving us this new command. He's taking this truth and he is raising to a standard so high that it's only by following Christ that we're able to live this out. Where look at what it says in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so, okay, if we already defined what neighbor is, we need to define, okay, what is an enemy? Who, who are enemies that we are to love? An enemy is primarily those outside of the community of God's people who oppress the community of God's people. So instead of hating our enemies, we're to love our enemies. Whether there's someone that is a, a devout follower of Christ or someone that just wants nothing to do with Christ, it doesn't matter in the eyes of God. We're to love both of them equally the same. In fact, some of the references that it talks about loving our enemies we see in Scripture is, is like in Luke 6, 27 through 28, where it says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Or we see in Romans 12, 20, where it says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals onto his head. Basically, what that was saying is that Romans 12 verse, it was in a larger context, a larger passage, where it's talking about the true marks of a Christian. How true mark of a follower of Christ is ones that love their enemies. That even if their enemy is hungry or thirsty, that we give them a cup of water. We give them something to eat. So not only instead of to not hate our enemy, instead of not only loving our enemy, but we're to pray for our enemy or to pray for those who persecute us. And I just want you to listen to some of these references that this refers to in Scripture where we are to pray for those who persecute us. The first one is in Luke 23, 24, where Jesus is dying on the cross and people are mocking him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That Jesus was praying for those who were persecuting him, even while he was dying on the cross. Or Acts 7, 60, 
where Stephen is, is evangelizing to the people and the people don't want to hear it and they chase him out of town and they're about to stone him to death and he stares up and he sees into heaven. He sees Christ standing, applauding him, ready to welcome him home. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them as they're about to chuck stones at this man and take his life. And Stephen's saying, don't, don't hold this sin against them. Or in 2 Timothy 4, 16, where Paul is saying, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. By the way, that same Paul that was standing at the side before Stephen was stoned, that was holding people's robes before they cast stones at Stephen, that Paul was there and witnessed that, that Stephen's saying, don't hold this against them. Or 1 Peter 3, 9, where it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, those, for this to you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Think about this. Even in the face of these enemies that wanted to kill them or people that have wronged them, these guys praise that God would forgive them. Just like Bashir, they prayed that God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. They opened their eyes that they would become truly receive Christ, that they would be repentive of their sins. Now, now let me also say this. Just like last week when I said when we are wronged or when someone sins against us, just like last week with that, like I said, your, your emotions are valid in that. Those feelings of being wronged or hurt or backstabbed are absolutely valid. Same with this week, that when we are wrong, when someone wrongs us or hurts us. This doesn't mean that that, that that is excused for what they did. That's not excusing for what they did. And they might have to face the consequences of their actions, whether that be legally on this side of eternity or whether it be when Christ comes back and judges everyone for all the wrongs that people have done, especially against the righteous, those that are children of God. But regardless of what they did, that we are to hand it over to God and allow God to be the one that seeks the vengeance because he is just in that. But we're not to respond as how they did. We're to respond as how Christ did. We're responding, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We're not to respond as the world responds. Because like I said, when we fight fire with fire, all it does is the fire gets bigger and more people get burned. That's what happens. But instead, we are to, we are to quelch that fire. We're to move and show the love of Christ to other people around us. So if we're to love our neighbors, love our enemies, love all of those people in our spheres of influence, I want you to think about this. Think about who is your neighbor. I just want you to think about those different areas. Think about those people you interact with on a constant basis. Think about those you interact with at work or school or sports or your neighborhood. And then I want you to think about this. Who are those people in that area that you just cannot stand? Those people just, when they come to mind, just, ah, like it grinds your gears. Like, like you cannot, like just the thought of them just makes your skin crawl. They're just angry. Or what about those people in the area? What about people in those spheres of influence that maybe feel like that, like, like you feel like they hate you, or you feel like there's just strong emotions there towards one another, or you feel like someone that's maybe wronged you in that area? How do you respond to those people, whether it be externally or internally? Are you quick to want, let's say, vengeance or something else to happen back against them? Are you quick to wish what happened to you happened right back to them? Do you pray for them? Do you pray for their well-being? Do you pray instead of wrongs happening to them, do you pray that Christ would open up their eyes and see the wrongs that they have done? 
Do you pray that God would give you a heart of compassion for those people? Do you pray that God would lead them to salvation? Would you even go a step further saying, God, would you help me lead them to salvation? Because here's the thing, we are commanded by God to not hate them, but instead to love them and pray for them. To love them and pray for them. This will require the grace of God because, again, this goes against everything in our nature. Everything within our nature wants to hate these people. Everything within our nature wants to hold these grudges. Everything within our nature wants to say, okay, if you have hurt me, then I'm going to return an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a blow for a blow. That what goes around comes around. That is just the natural desire we want to have. So it takes the grace of God to help us with this. Because again, our natural sinful desire is we want to return that to them. So we need to surrender it over to God and allow him to work in our hearts to surrender it over to him. So how do we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Let's look at verse 45 where it says this. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So how are we to love our enemies? That we might be sons or daughters, children of God. Because here's what it shows. When we love our enemies, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. That when we love our enemies, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. Because again, this is totally countercultural. It's against everything within our nature. This goes against everything within us that we want to do. But the more we look to God, we look to that second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. We must get the first commandment right where we love God with everything. That we love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Literally love him with everything that he captures every part of our life, then we're truly able to love our neighbor as ourselves, Because we've seen the greatest love displayed in Christ dying on the cross. That we're to be imitators of God. That we are showing ourselves as children of God. That we are showing that we've experienced the greatest love ever known through Christ and show that to others. Because here's the thing, when we talk about loving our enemies... If we are a follower of Christ, we used to be that enemy. We used to be the one that wanted nothing to do with Christ. We used to be the one that that we wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Absolutely nothing to do with him. Live our life on our own. But then we see that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it says we were children of wrath. We were, we were literally dead in our sins. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were following the philosophy of the world. We were just following whatever Satan told us to do. And it said, but God, that God interjected, God stepped onto the scene. Why? Because he is rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us. Made us alive together with Christ. That if we're a follower of Christ, we understand we've experienced the greatest love ever known because we don't deserve. We understand we are undeserving of this immense, matchless, amazing love that God showed us. And that should overwhelm our hearts and just spill out and overflow out of our lives. And we show that to other people, regardless of where they're at, especially to those who are enemies of God, because we want them to experience that and see that. We want them to see. We want people that hated God to love God. We want those that were adversaries of God to become advocates of God. We want those who are children of wrath to become children of God under his grace. Because Christ died for each and every one of those people and offers each and every one of those people salvation just like he did for us. And we accept it and received it. 
And then God shows us in verse 45 how he is unconditional in his love and shows why are we to love our enemies. So like it says, he, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So it says he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. It's okay. Literally what evil means is just a bad person who does harm to others. And a good person is a good person who is good to other people. So he makes his son rise on those that are bad people and those that are good people. Those that harm people and those that do good to other people. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Just meaning a righteous person characterized by righteous actions and morals. And an unjust person being just an unrighteous person characterized by unrighteousness and godlessness. So he sends rain. He makes the sun rise on those that want everything to do with God and those that want nothing to do with God. Those that are great, those that are great in the eyes of God, those that are good, if you will, and those that are evil, those that are just and those that are unjust. These can be two more polar opposite people. Yet it says God sends the rain on both of them. God helps the sun rise on both of them. And what that shows is this, that God loves both the believer and the unbeliever equally. He loves the believer and the unbeliever equally. Because it says he sends the rain to both the just and the unjust. He has the sun rise on both the evil and the good. Why? Because he loves everyone equally. He loves everyone equally. Now again, just because he loves everybody, let's say universally, doesn't mean universally everyone is saved. I think that is very important to distinct as well. But yes, he loves everyone universally. He desires that everyone comes to know Christ and be saved. But as the person to respond, to repent of their sins, believe in Christ, and receive this gift of salvation that Christ has purchased. And we're able to help in that cause. That God empowers us and helps us to love other people and point them to Christ. And so you have the greatest gift ever known. That you can receive Christ. That, you can, that, that Christ took the wrath of God that we deserved. And he loves us so much that he died for us. And we wanted nothing to do with him. That is because loving others is to imitate God. So we're loving others to imitate God. But then the second truth that we are to live out, if we are to love everyone unconditionally, universally, is this. Is loving others is to be constantly striving for maturity. Loving others is to be constantly striving for maturity. So look what it says in verses 47 through 48. It says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And even if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be holy or you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So he says in verse 46, okay, if you love those who love you, what reward is that? Even the tax collectors do that. Now I want you to know like that, that would be a huge like slight against the Jews at this time because they did not like the tax collectors. Basically, the tax collectors, they would, help Rome, they would help the Roman government collect taxes. And a lot of times, there'd be people that would collect a lot more taxes than they needed to. They would go overboard with the taxes because they could keep whatever was the difference between what they needed to collect it and more they collected for themselves. And so the Jews did not like them. I mean, the Jews considered them traitors and thieves. Jews were not a big fans of the tax collectors. And he's saying, look, if you just love those who love you as well, even the tax collectors do that. Even the tax collectors, who's a small minority that people don't like, even they love one another. Even they care for one another. And so he goes a step further in uh, verse 47 where it says, look, if you greet only your brothers, only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing others? Even the Gentiles do that. So the Gentiles were considered outsiders just like the tax collectors. He was saying, okay, if you only greet fellow Jews, 
then you're doing the exact same thing as the Gentiles. You are no different than them. You're just going with people that are exact same thing as you, going with the same little groups, same type of huddles. You're not expanding outside of that. And what that shows is our love for Christ must go beyond the walls of the church. Our love for Christ must go beyond of the walls of the church. We cannot keep it to ourselves. That we must go beyond the walls of the church, go back into these communities that Christ has called us to and show the love of Christ to these people. Think about this. Think if someone kept the gospel to themselves. Think about if no one branched out outside of their own little group to reach other people for Christ. Some of us might not even be in here tonight. It was because there was at least that one person that was bold enough, daring enough to step outside of that group to go take this gospel, to go love people in their spheres of influence, to go love other people, to tell other people about Christ. And that led to the spreading of the gospel. Because there's the thing, the reason it should go outside the walls of the church, the reason we should be loving everyone regardless of their background or anything else is because the love of Christ welcomes all. The love of Christ welcomes all. Think about this. Regardless of their past, regardless of where they came from, regardless of who their family is, regardless of their occupation, regardless of their theology, ideology, favorite sports teams, how they dress, how they look, how they talk, how they sound, whatever, you name it. The love of Christ welcomes everyone. Because Christ came to die and he paid for the penalty for all of our sins for all of time and purchased our salvation for all of those who would repent and believe and receive that gift of salvation. And so if Christ died for all and if Christ loves all, then our love for others should be unconditional, no strings attached. We should not be partial in our love for others. In fact, when we were going through our study on James, we saw that, that we are not to show partiality. Then we show partiality, when we show favoritism towards one certain group over others, then what we are saying through our lives, whether we realize it or not, is that God loves different people differently. That God doesn't have the same love for other people. And we see that as totally contrary to the command that Christ gives us, that we are to love everyone the same. Rich or poor, regardless of where they come from, we are to love everyone the same. But how do we achieve this? How do we love other people? How do we go beyond just our smaller groups? How do we go beyond, let's say, not just seeming like the tax collectors and Gentiles? How do we get this outside of the walls of the church? How do we welcome all the other people? And he gives it to us in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What it means by perfect, it means complete, mature, a life totally integrated to the will of God. This verse encompasses every other command we have seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount. So when he talks about he is the fulfillment of the law, when he talks about how we are to not anger, how we are to not lust, how we are to not divorce, how we are to not retaliate, how we are to not swear oaths, and how we are to love our enemies, this is the fulfillment of all of that. Therefore, we are to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. If we are to be salt and light, if we are to not anger, not lust, stay faithful in marriage, stay faithful in our living so people trust us, not retaliate, love our enemies, we must conform ourselves into the image of Christ and reflect the character of God. The greater righteousness that, that Jesus talks about in 520, where he says, hey, I fulfilled the law. And then he says, look, even the righteousness of the Pharisees, that you must have a greater righteousness than even them if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is this greater righteousness. He is the one that the only one that is able to fulfill all these laws that we are to live out and obey. 
But we must ask, how are we to be perfect when we are the complete opposite? And we see that the more it says when we look at the law, it reveals the sin in our hearts. It reveals how we are fallen, sinful human beings. It reveals that. And what we saw is that we can't just obey every single strict law. And that means we're good. No, there's still a heart that needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. There's still a heart that needs to be totally surrendered to God. There still needs to be a heart transformation in that, not just strict obedience to the law. Here's the answer. It is only by the grace of God. Think about this. Christ has perfectly lived out these commands. Christ has perfectly lived all of these out. And that if we are followers of him, if we have repented and believed in him and received him as Lord and Savior, that he is living within us. And his Holy Spirit works powerfully within us to help us strive after this. That we're not doing this on our own. It's not like God saves and says, all right, you're on your own to figure this out. No, Christ is like, not only did I save you, I'm with you every step of the way in your process. I'm with you every step of the way to continue to conform you more into my image, to become more of a follower of me. And along the way, you're able to point others to me and able to love other people that you interact with. That as you're growing in your faith in Christ, you're still able to go back into the community and love those people as you are growing. He is the one that empowers us to love our enemies because we have seen how he has loved us while we were enemies of him. So here's the thing. To strive for maturity is not about doing more, but it's about surrendering more. Because we have this mindset of, okay, I have to just, I have to do more in my life. I have, to, I, have to, I have to read my Bible more and I have to go to church all the time and do that stuff. And Christ is saying, like, yes, that is a good thing to have, but it should be the motivation behind it that is more important. It should be instead of, okay, I'm going to do more to earn more brownie points with God. It's saying, okay, I know that I cannot do this on my own. So instead of me trying to do more and strive for more, I'm going to surrender more of my life over to Christ and let him work on my heart. I'm going to surrender more of my life over to him, surrender my heart over to him and say, God, here is my heart laid wide open. Do whatever you want with it. Do whatever with my life. Use me however you want. Send me to wherever you want me to go to love those. What we've heard described is it's putting your yes on the table. Another way I've heard described is, is that our lives are supposed to be like blank checks rather than gift cards. So like a lot of us with gift cards, we, we know we have a certain amount on that gift card, right? So we are going to spend up until that limit. Once we hit that limit, okay, I've reached my limit, I've reached the max, I've done that, I'm good. But when we offer our lives as a blank check, we're literally saying, okay, God, here is the account to my life. All of my dreams, all of my life, all of my time, all of my possessions, everything about me, and I lay before you, you can sign however much you want. You can, you, you can cash however much you want. You can spend however much you want. Or another way to describe it today, let's say it's PayPal or Venmo or Cash App, where it has access to our entire bank account. We say, God, here's the username and password. Spend however much you want of my life and use it. We are to hold nothing back when it comes to loving others. Because we love God first, we see that Christ has done for us. We see what he has done for us. That while we're enemies, he loves us. That while we wanted nothing to do with them, while we were adversaries to God and wanted nothing to do with them, he made us an advocate for him. He brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He has brought us from children under wrath to children under grace. And so if he is able to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, if he's able to forgive us of all of our sins for all of time, if he is able to handle all of that, then he is able to help us love our enemies. Because we've seen how he has done that in our life. 
So let me close with this and ask you this. These two questions. One, are you imitating the love of God to your neighbors? This, this same love that you have experienced, are you, are you showing that to others? Are you showing that to those in your community, that sphere of influence you have? Are you imitating this love of God that you've experienced to those around you? And second, are you constantly striving to grow more in your faith? Are you constantly striving to surrender more of your life over to Christ and have him do whatever he wants with it, to live for him, to grow more into the person he has called us each individually to be, to call us as a family to be? That once we surrender our life over to Christ, once we do that, then we're able to love others unconditionally and universally as we've seen. That we're able to imitate God as we do this. We're able to grow in our faith only by the grace of Christ that works powerfully within us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much just for the cross of Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you just for all that Christ has done for us, that, that we are so undeserving, that, that, that we are just sinners, that, that we are a wretch before you because of our sin, yet you made a wretch your treasure. That despite seeing all of the things that we would do, despite seeing all the things that people would do to you leading up to the cross, that you still came down and said, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. That you drank the cup of wrath, every last drop, that you took all that on to show this is how much I love my creation. This is how much I love. This is to the extent I will pursue to all the ends of the earth so that people can see the true, amazing love of God. Lord, would you let us never get over that? Would you have that love just encapture our hearts and overwhelm us to where we can't help but it spills out and overflows out of our lives and we go and tell others about him. Regardless of who it is, that we will love them unconditionally. That regardless of who we interact with, we will love them universally. No matter who it is, what their background is, that they will be able to experience this love of God that we have experienced. Would you help us strive for that? Would you help us continue to become the people of God you've called us to be? Would you help us continue to become the family of God you've called us to be? Would you help us here at LSM continue to make Christ's name known one student at a time, one family at a time, one place at a time? It's only by your grace we're able to do this. And I pray this in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen.